Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out from streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When their ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy." Um, And now we'll go to chapter 30. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Though through want and hard hunger they gnaw and dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick solwit and leaves of the bushes and the roots of the broom tree of their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after me as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nestles they huddle together, a senseless and nameless brood, and have been whipped out of the land. And now we'll move to chapter 31. Job's final appeal. I have made a covenant with my eyes, How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, And if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed towards a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For what would would be a heinous crime that would be an an iniquity to be punished by the judges? For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root. Of all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my maidservant or my manservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make me? And did did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything, that the poor desired or caused my, the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has, not, fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed, blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, 
Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in its splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an inquiry to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveller. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Thanks, Yana. What a reading. Welcome to church. My name is Aaron, if I haven't met you before. I'm a student pastor here. I want to extend a welcome to you, if this is your first time, to our little church plant. We are in an RSL, which is a bit different. So thank you for joining us and being with us. We're in a series at the moment, as Yana said, in the book of Job, which is, as Yana said, in the Hebrew scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament, and particularly in the wisdom literature section. So in case there are some things in this reading that you find a bit uncomfortable, a bit strange, a bit different, you've got to keep that in mind. Well, I'm sorry but not sorry for that long scripture reading. I asked it to be done because it's important for us to remember that scripture is not just trying to teach us about something, even though it is trying to do that, but it's actually trying to do something to us. It's not just trying to transfer information, but it's actually trying to bring transformation in our being, in our feeling, in our doing. And so that's why I got it to be read in its entirety. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, the messages have been quite weighty. And just to be upfront, the messages are only going to get weightier and weightier. Which feels in some ways a bit strange after last night's jubilee, triumph for the Matildas, like we're in such a good mood, I feel. But uh, welcome to church. We deal with the complexities of life, the, the, the depth of life. And one of our values of, of this church is authentic community. We're not afraid of the hard stuff. And so that's why we're venturing through this book. The final thing I want to say as a preamble is I really, if I'm honest, I feel a sense of trepidation open up the book of Job, um, not only because of how weighty it is, but also of the fact because I'm just so aware that I'm a younger person and so I totally have not suffered if not more probably, if not, not probably, I probably, not probably, I, that's for words, I definitely have not suffered as much as you, so I, I approach these words with such fear and trepidation, but I just want to say, look, I'm not here to, to be one of Job's religious friends who tries to be like an expert, 
but to actually sit under God's with you. And I hope to do that every week that I preach, and James does too. And my hope and prayer is as we dive in that this will give us a, a fresh realness and rawness to our relationship with God. So let me pray, and then we'll get in. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that they are life. We thank you that they tell us the truest story of the, of the world that we're living in. And so we pray, God, invite us in now to this story, to inhabit what's happening here in Job, and transform us, renew us by your spirit as we hear the words of scripture preached. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 11 p.m. on the 11th of June, 2023, and a large bus is carrying a group of wedding guests home. By 11.30 p.m., the bus, while trying to navigate a roundabout, goes too fast, flips onto its side, and crashes. Ten people are killed, 25 people are injured. Of those hurt, a 21-year-old surfer and a young married couple who leave behind two young toddler boys. The time of this story coming out, I'd only freshly been married. I still am only freshly a year and a half married. And it was fresh in my mind, the, the scenes of jubilee and laughter and fun that I got to have on my wedding night. And not only that, Lara and I too had a bus on it with some of our closest friends. And so when this story came out, I, I didn't know how to respond. How could you respond to something like this? And so all eyes, including my eyes, turned to the families, their friends, the media. How would they respond? Responses. Responses say a lot about us. They say a lot about what we value, about who we are, and about how something has affected us. Today's story is a story about a response, a final response. This is a story about a God who listens even when we feel like he's not there. This is a story about a God who is more ready for our response than we are ready for our own. A God who invites us to talk to him when all we want to do is run away. This is a story about a response. Last week, as Yana said, we looked at how to generously comfort those who are suffering and how we should not do it as well in the example of Job's friends. But this week, the story zooms in on us as individuals. How should we respond when evil strikes, suffering lingers, or tragedy erupts? How should we respond? It's worth pausing to ask, how does the Australian secular story tell us how to respond as individuals to suffering? to tragedy. We always like to talk about the cultural story here at Anchor because the cultural stories we live in is kind of like a water that we're swimming in as fish. It's there, but we often easily miss it. And so broadly speaking, the Australian secular story says that the individual should respond to suffering by pushing and struggling beyond their suffering. Our convict roots have formed us into a type of stoicism or battler mentality where we're really good at pushing through but not as good at processing what's within. One Australian journalist in the ABC a few years ago described stoicism as the default practical philosophy for those of us in Australia. 
obviously a broad stereotype, but nevertheless, the default practical philosophy, Stoicism. Stoicism was founded by the ancient Greek, Zeno of Citium, in 300 BC. And basically, in simple terms, it's all about the mastery of the emotions and pushing through, not pushing through suffering. Anzac Stoicism is a good example of this in Australian culture. Think of the large bronze figures in the middle of the Australian war memorial. Expressionless, strong, resolute. And so, us Aussies, we have this maxim that we should never kind of go over the top in our response. Don't overshare, like TMI. One Australian GP described the stereotypical cultural paradigm as a stoic farmer who works the land, never complains, cuts his hand with a chainsaw, and just gets on with it. And so we're formed to be privately polite and polished. We might internally say to ourselves when we're dealing with suffering, yeah, it's tragic, but not much else. The individual in the Northern Beaches, more specifically, I think, has a mixed story when it comes to responding to suffering. We're, we're kind of romantic Stoics, I think, or emotional Stoics. Like we're kind of torn between you know, pushing past our emotions, a Stoicism sort of thing, and wholeheartedly sinking in our emotions, just flooding in them just by listening to Paper Cut's new album over and over and over again. We're very career-orientated, and so we might distract ourselves from suffering by working harder and harder and harder. But we're also in love with the beach, in nature, and so we might just sit in our emotions by going for a walk, doing yoga, going on the surf. A, a torn stoicism and romanticism mix. The growth of counsellors and therapists show we desperately want someone to talk to about our pain. But even our counsellors, our therapists, our psychologists, they, however helpful, they leave us wanting more. And this often leaves us bottling up dark feelings and trying to cast them away with any hit or high we can get our hands on. And so the individual in the secular story agrees life is tragic and unfair but is left to sit with no true hope for the world to be ultimately put right. If we return to Job, when we look at the story of Job as a whole, we see that the book as a whole revolves around a response. How will Job respond? If we recap the story as Yana started to do, the story of Job begins with three main characters, God, Satan, and a wealthy man named Job. And Satan basically questions God, is Job actually a good God follower? Like, look how wealthy and good his life is. Let me make him suffer, and then let's see how he responds. And so Job experiences extreme physical, psychological, and personal suffering. Family is killed, friends are killed, extremely debilitating physical illness. And the central, team of the, the central tension of the book is, how will Job respond to this? Like, will he curse God? And, and, and show that he only followed God for the benefits that God gave? Or will he, will he run away or will he maintain his integrity? Will he stay strong? And last week, we looked at how Job's friends called him to respond. Job's friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had a whole host of ideas as to how Job should respond. Repent, Job. Acknowledge you have done wrong, Job. Accept God is punishing you, Job. Elihu, in the following chapters after that, we just read, we read earlier, basically he says, just trust the justice of God, Job. 
And yet we know from the end of the book, spoiler alert, that God condemns all these suggested responses. It's not the right way. And today the scene moves away from him chatting with his friends, this dialogue, to a place of isolation and loneliness. Job himself, he's been responding in little ways throughout the book to his suffering, but here it reaches his climax. It's going to be the most emotional he's ever been. But is this right? Is this the right way to respond? Or is he going to overstep the mark? Is he going to suddenly show that he's actually not righteous? And so as the writer of Job puts it here, Job here continues his discourse. A final speech, you could say. A a soliloquy in the ancient Greeks form. So how will Job respond? Well, there are three movements of his final speech. We'll spend time in each one of them. Speech movement one. In the first speech movement, Job starts his speech by longing for the past, or what Aussies might call the good old days. There are references to past times and past tense throughout the chapter, if you've got it there. Verse 2 of chapter 29. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. Yes, he did say prime there. How good. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime. Job remembers and longs for the time in life when it felt like God was close to him. Job longs for, quote, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. In the ancient world, kings went looking for advice from the divine to help them in their work. And to get this help, they would actually go into a temple and sleep in the temple so they can have a dream. And in that dream, they would hope to kind of overhear what the gods were talking about or to get direct advice from a god. And so Job here by saying, you know, God's blessed my house, he's talking about how he longs for that time when it felt like his house was sacred space. When, quote, the Almighty was with me. Job also remembers and longs for the time, the good old days, when he was honored and respected as a leader in the community. Verse 11. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist him. Verse 21. People listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. I made the widow's heart sing. Job longs for the time when he was a good bloke and everyone knew it. People listened to him. He had respect from others. And in the ancient world, that was so highly valued, respect from your community. Job longs for the times when he thought life would turn out well for him. Have a look at verse 18. I thought I will die in my own house. Verse 19. My days will reach to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. Access to moisture or water in a climate where rain was scarce was, was kind of uh, you know, a particular image. And this reminds us of Psalm 1, the blessed person like a tree planted by streams of water. And so Job remembers when he expected life would just go so well for him, when he felt like he would just keep living, he'd have the best time, when he'd die in his own house, he'd have glory. And so in this first speech movement, Job longs for the past. In Job's second speech movement, he moves from longing to the past to lamenting the present. 
The first two words, but now, of chapter 30, are an emphatic marker that presents to us his change in focus. Job now laments how many of the relationships he just spoke about in chapter 9 have turned upside down. They've gone to mud. They've turned to dust and ashes. Respect has turned to contempt. Silence has turned to mourning. Mocking, rather. Honor has turned to shame. You know, once young people silently marveled at his wisdom, but now young people, they spit at him and they taunt him. It feels as though his soul has been poured out from him. A more literal reading of verse 16. And yet a dramatic thing happens in verse 20 of chapter 30. Here Job goes from talking to his friends, as he did earlier in the story, to talking directly to God. The intensity of his speech cracks up even more. Have a look, verse 20. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. It almost gets a bit awkward as a reader. Like, Is it okay for Job to be talking like this? Isn't he talking to God? Isn't he righteous? This question only grows in intensity as his speech goes on. You do not answer me. You can almost hear Job weeping and muttering as a slobbering mess with these words. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in distress. Or the churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. Job is in outright despair. He's almost hysterical here, which for once a noble and wealthy man is a sight to behold. But is it okay for Job to be frank with God like this? Like, shouldn't he just be sucking it up and praising God for his goodness? Job laments the present, which leads us to speech movement three, where Job ramps up his dialogue even more, no longer longing for the past or lamenting the present, but complaining for his future. Job gives in chapter 31 what was recognized in the ancient Near East as an oath of clearance. And an oath of clearance was basically, in the ancient areas, a form of um, self-clearance. You basically try and force a verdict down on yourself, calling the judgment of God onto yourself if what you were swearing wasn't true. So it's kind of like me saying, I pinky promise on my grandma's grave, X, and my poor grandma. But what I'm basically saying there is, if what I'm saying is not right, you, you know, judgment on my grandma. Love you, grandma. And the Egyptian gods had a clear example of this. This is a common thing. And so we see Job repeatedly use this phrase in chapter 31. If I've done this, if I've done that, that's to say, what have I done wrong? Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her. Job defends his sexual ethics. Verse 13, if I have denied justice to any of my servants whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? Job defends his care for social justice. This is incredible when we see in the ancient world that masters did not, did not take care of their slaves very well at all. And yet Job does. Verse 24, if I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security, 
then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God. Job defends his lack of worship, of money and wealth. And this is crazy, again, when we realize that Job was one of the wealthiest men. And yet he did not put his trust in, in wealth. Job defends his righteousness. He really is a righteous sufferer. Verse 36, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. See, Job is still thinking through that tit-for-tat lens, that retribution lens that we spoke about last week, that kind of karma lens. He thinks that God must be judging him for something he's done wrong and defends the fact that he hasn't done anything wrong. And as a reader, we're left wondering, will this unjust situation be put right? We're kind of on Job's side in a way, like, come on, God, what's going on here? And we're also, as a reader, left wondering, like, is it okay for Job to be speaking like this? Like, hasn't he overstepped the mark here? Has he compromised his character by complaining to God so intensely, it seems? And with verse 40, the words of his speech are ended. Have a look there. The words of Job are ended. And so Job ends by complaining for his future. Job's family are dead. His body is falling apart. And shame is upon him. And how does he respond? Job longs for the past. He laments the present. And he complains about his future. It's emotional. It's dramatic. It's maybe even extreme, like Job does not mince his words. He says he feels like dust and ashes. Compare that to Australian stoicism. The big picture I want to create about Job's response is this. There is nothing polite or polished about Job's response. There's not an ounce of stoicism. There's nothing but what Aussies might call a raw and real response. Nothing but a raw and real response to God. What the ancients might summarize as the practice of lament. But is this okay, how Job responds? As I've been asking over and over again, does this actually show that God respects God, that Job respects God for nothing? I said and I suggested. Has Job overstepped the mark? Are we to accept this posture or are we to reject it? Without giving the end of the story away, what's interesting is that when God goes on to respond to Job's words, and more of this next week, so I won't steal you to Thunder Damo, don't worry. When God responds, he does not necessarily criticize Job's words here. Sure, he calls Job to consider his limited view of God's wisdom. And again, more of this next week. But when God goes on to describe Job's words at the end of the book, the very end of the book, what does he say? He actually describes Job's words as truth. Job 42 verse 8, this is God speaking to Job's friends. God says to Job's friends, you've spoken the truth about you have not spoken the truth about me. Sorry. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has, implying that Job's talking about the truth here. 
Now, this passage suggests some of his words might be a bit off. There's a couple of, you know, strange theological things he says here. But his general approach to be raw and real is right and okay. Many church fathers also confirm Job is right and righteous in his response here. We see this in the Psalms too. David longs, laments, and complains to the broken evil and suffering in his life. And Kit mentioned this in our Q&A episode, which just absolutely blew me away when I heard him say it. There are more Psalms of lament than Psalms of praise in the Bible. Let that sink in. More Psalms of lament than Psalms of praise. And perhaps most emphatically, we see a raw and real response from the ultimate righteous sufferer in the story of the Christian scriptures, Jesus himself. Hebrews 5.7 says Jesus offered up loud cries and tears in his prayers. Not just cries. Did you hear that? But loud cries. The author of Hebrew emphasizes. And tears. And perhaps most emphatically, Jesus in Matthew's gospel says these words as he's hanging on the cross with darkness all around him, coining Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Truly we see in Jesus a rawness and a realness like no other. Job is right to be raw and real. Or as the ancients would say, Job is right to lament. It is okay to be raw and real to God. In fact, it's not just okay. It's good. As I said right at the start of this message, I've definitely suffered less than you, but nevertheless, I feel led to share that over five years ago, my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I remember walking into the hospital not knowing how to respond as a Christian, if I'm honest with you. And I sat down next to my mum, and she'd been having lots of chemo, I think in her head, it wasn't in a good way. And I feel ashamed to share this, but I had a strange smile on my face. A strange sense of, aren't I just meant to be joyful now? And my mum noticing this, she said, oh, when so-and-so pastor came, he had a look of concern on his face. And she didn't say much more than that because she was very loving and kind. But she was right. I, was, I went, remember walking home to get the bus home and just feeling like, why did I have a smile on my face? My body just didn't know how to process it. I'm a bit of a weird mixture when it comes to emotions because my dad is a, you know, Aussie, Australian, Anglo-Saxon, but my mum's side is Egyptian, so they're fully really crazy emotional. Like, they'll jump in a coffin if someone's died. Um, and so I'm in this weird mix where Myers-Briggs, ENFJ, I am an F, I'm a feeler. Um, but at the same time, I really struggle to cry. Like I just rarely ever, and I can't, even when I want to. In that moment, my, just, my body did not know whether it was okay to be completely raw and real to God, and it didn't even know how. And yet we hear in this story that it is okay to be raw and real to God. It is not just okay, actually. It's good. And so we've looked at Job's response But here and now, in 2023, in the Northern Beaches, how should we individually respond to suffering? 
If our Aussie secular story is forming us into a people who stoically battle on and who are kind of, and if the Northern Beaches story is forming us to a people who are kind of torn between emotional sulking and pushing through pain, the story we're, we're invited to hear invites us into a far more authentic way to respond. In common language, what I've been describing as being raw and real, but what the ancients broadly called lament. Not bottling up what's within, but pushing through Not pushing through what's within, but giving what is within us to God. Raw and real to God. Peter in the New Testament encourages us in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so we're called to be a raw and a real people to God. We're called to lament. It's important to say, though, lament or being raw and real is not just an emotional release, but it's actually an emotional release to God. One author put it like this, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. We don't just sit in our emotions. In Northern Beaches, as I say, we can, you know, Kind of romantic stoics, we kind of like listen to paper carts over and over again. This isn't just about a therapeutic release, you know, but it's actually about pleading help from God. Another author on this topic said, quote, We do need to move on from lamenting to see God's faithfulness afresh, but we will not do so if we bottle up our hurts and anger or pretend they do not exist. Instead, we need to lay out our inner sufferings before the one who can change both us and our circumstances, helping us through to a deeper, growing trust in our God. It's also important to say that lament or being raw and real to God, it's not a sign of immaturity, but it's actually a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of a lack of faith, but it's actually a sign of faith. Like, Can I gently suggest to us all, and I'm saying this to me too, like an overly polished prayer life is not an authentic relationship with God. He wants more of us. Did you hear how Job spoke to God? Some of us may have been subtly formed by a Christian subculture, or even as the secular story, a stoic culture as well, to say that lament is just not good. One commentator suggested, quote, lament has been rejected by purveyors of positive thinking. Christian leaders urge their followers to claim the victory rather than complain or lament. Now, sure, the New Testament speaks of rejoicing and being persecuted for the faith. Sure. But the Bible seems to be clear that suffering due to the brokenness of the world should be nothing but lamented. Nancy Duff said this, an American theologian, Psalms of lament allow us to speak from the darkest regions of the heart where our despair threatens to overwhelm us. In so speaking, we do not exhibit a lack of faith, but stand in a biblical tradition that recognizes that no part in life, including the most hideous and painful parts, is to be withheld from God. I love that. No part is to be withheld. And one more thing to say here is that lament not only provides an articulation of what we're experiencing, but a means of coping of what we're experiencing. So how do we practically do this? How do we be raw and real to God? How do we lament? Well, there's no set structure for lament, 
but there are elements that you could include, such as, number one, invocation. An invocation is a calling on God. God, where are you? God, hear me. God, where are God, what's your situation? Number two, a lament or complaint itself. So bringing the actual situation, this is what it is, just in frank, open terms. Number three, an, ex- an expressive confidence. God, I know this is who you are. This is what you say you do. This is who your character is. And number four, praise. Now, you might not include all of these every time, but they're useful categories to keep in your mind. You can also pray or sing the Psalms, and particularly the so-called Psalms of Darkness to practice lament. Psalm 22, for example, that I quoted just earlier. It should rattle us, and it rattled me, that most of the Psalms in the Bible are Psalms of lament rather than praise. And the church has been using this as a prayer handbook for their grief and pain for centuries. So let's use the Psalms of Darkness for our grief and our pain. You could also acquire a prayer prayer book or book of liturgy that includes prayers of lament. So an example is you might have heard of it, Every Moment Holy, version 1 or version 2. Version 2 in particular is on lament. Another one is called Liturgies for Hope, which is also really good. So church, this story, this part of Job's story is inviting us deeper into the spiritual practice of lament, of rawness and realness. Now, I was going to stop the message here and leave it there, but I could not. I just could not. There's just one more angle that has to be said in giving a message on this particular story here. There's one more angle to this spiritual practice. One more thing to this story. You know, I mentioned one of the subplots in the story is is Job right. But the other subplot I mentioned in the story is, will things be made right? Will this situation be resolved? You know, when that bus, bus rolled over in June... In northwest of New South Wales, we all knew it wasn't right. It all, we all knew it wasn't fair. And something deep within us longed for that situation to be put right. We longed for just to be, justice to be served on the driver and for those innocent people to have their lives back. In the same way, we leave Job's longing, lamenting and complaining here with a similar yearning for his situation to be made right. For his injustice to be overcome, for the unfairness to be resolved. Like, come on God, what's going on here? See, at the heart of this practice of rawness and realness of lament it is a desire for things to be made right in this broken world you could say that at the heart of rawness and realness is rightness the apostle paul says romans 8 the whole creation is groaning for redemption groaning for things to be made right and so as followers of jesus we're invited into a story where there is someone beyond us who not only desires but will put all things right. Job's rawness and realness points to the ultimate righteous sufferer, Jesus, the one who will launch God's project of putting all things right in his life and death and resurrection. This is the heart of the Christian story. This is the heart of your story, of my story. And so what this means is that this practice of rawness and realness, it's not just for our own individual relationship with God. It's not just for us but it's actually a prophetic sign to the world around us. Our lament points to the strong and certain hope that we all have for all things to be made new, for the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of Jesus, for this world to be finally and utterly redeemed and renewed. When Jesus walks into Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps, but what do the tears point to? The the kingdom that is to come through his death and resurrection. And so lament is not just for our sake, but for the world's. At the heart of realness and rawness 
is rightness. And so as we practice lament, as we practice realness and rawness, would this point to the rightness to come? And so church, long, lament, complain, go for it. God is here to listen to you. Don't bottle it up. Don't just you know, talk to others. Talk to God. God is not conflict avoidant. He's not going to run out of here because he can't take your complaints. He won't hit you over the head with them either. He hears you. Come to him. Stop being so polite and polished. Be raw and real. And church, let your prophetic tears roll. Let them roll and speak to the world around you. Let our realness and rawness point to the rightness to come. He is bringing renewal. He is bringing redemption. And one day we shall no longer groan. We shall no longer weep. We shall no longer lament. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. God is putting all things right. The words of Job are ended. What are your words? How will you respond?